This podcast is sponsored by Acres USA, the voice of eco-agriculture. For more than 45 years, the writers, editors, and growing experts at Acres USA have cultivated information about modern farming practices that do not rely on toxic pesticides and toxic herbicides. We share that information through our monthly magazine, our online bookstore, events around the country, and through online articles and podcasts like this. If you're a new farmer or have been farming for a lifetime, you know there's always more to learn. New research into soil life, gut health, and nutrient and mineral applications are changing the way we look at farm management, and the most important part, the future of our soil. At Acres USA, we are committed to finding the experts to teach you these methods and practices. Learn more at www.acresusa.com or by calling 1-800-355-5313. Folks outside the U.S. and Canada can call us at 970-392-4464. If your business would like to advertise or sponsor the Tractor Time podcast, spots are available. Contact us today to find out more, and thank you for listening to Tractor Time. We are in a revolution, but it is a revolution in which the side that fires the first shot loses. We will not fire any shots because our weapon is uncommon good sense. Good day and welcome to Tractor Time. My name is Ryan Slave. I'm your host. This is brought to you by Acres USA. Uh, we're excited for our episode today. We have a guest from Colorado, a potato farmer named Brendan Rocky. Um, I wandered into a conference near Greeley, Colorado last year uh, and he was talking um, and doing slideshows and, and I, was, I was a bit surprised. Uh, we're surrounded by conventional ag or a lot of conventional ag here and so when I wandered in and heard a talk about uh, a wildly diverse potato field about growing at 7,000 feet above sea level, about the importance of microbial life in the soil, about how his neighbors even called him weird. Uh, I was pretty sure we had an Acres USA guy uh, in Brenton. And it turns out we followed up and we did. Uh, he'll be speaking at our conference in Louisville, Kentucky, December 4th through 7th, uh, about what he does on his farm, about how he went from weird to the envy of his community. Uh, today we're going to talk to Brendan about his journey to where he is today. Uh, about growing up on the farm, about being that third generation farmer, about constantly experimenting and learning and trying different things, about going against convention, about growing holistically, about doing things the healthiest way possible, and and actually delivering a really tasty, good uh, food to the marketplace uh, at the same time, and being profitable and being marketable. Um, We're going to talk to him about his quinoa crops, about cover cropping. Uh, We're going to get all sorts of different things. So uh, he runs a fascinating operation down by Alamosa, Colorado, uh, we want to welcome Brendan Rocky to Tractor Time. Oh, thank you. Uh, your farm, I believe, uh, that's where we'll start. It's kind of tell us tell us where you are today and, and uh, what you're working on your farm. And I think it was started in, in 1938, if I'm correct. Is that right? Yeah, it was started in 1938 by my grandpa, Floyd Rocky. Um, him and his family moved here to the San Luis Valley. And so after him, my dad and uncle took over the farm, ran it for quite a while. And now my brother and myself are the ones running the operation. That's so a, we are here in the San Luis Valley, which is south central part of Colorado. Was there ever a time where all three generations were working on the farm together? Um, not really. Um, just there were some health issues sure. with my grandpa, my dad, and my uncle up right on down the line. So every generation that came in actually took over at a pretty young age and was given a lot of responsibility early on. 
which looking back, you know, I, I wish there was other reason for it other than health issues being the, the driving force behind that, but it really allowed that next generation to take a lot of responsibility and, and keep it thriving by taking it over at such a young age. Yeah, I think that's the, the we had a few people say, you know, sustainability is really defined more than just what you're doing with the soil, but how many generations you have working on your farm at one time too. So I, I appreciate yeah. that. That uh, um, We'll talk about, I guess, if you don't mind expanding on that a little bit, uh, you know, talk about, you know, what are you growing on the farm right now and kind of how, how, what process did you go through to get to where you are today with what you're growing? Yeah, sure. Well, uh, so here, here in the valley, we actually are a high mountain desert. So we're high elevation. We're about 7,600 feet, but we're also less six inches of annual precipitation. Wow. And I said average because this year we're definitely well below that six inches. Right. It's been very hot and dry. So we've got sandy soil. So water is a, a big driving force behind a lot of what we do. Um, if it weren't for irrigation, none of us would be farming here. It's predominantly center pivot irrigation here in the area. Um, further south, and some of the alfalfa stuff, you'll find a little bit of flag that's predominantly uh, center pivot. So on our operation, we've got 500 acres that fit under irrigation, and we're on a two-year rotation. So each year, basically half of those acres are in potatoes, and then the other half will either be in a cover crop or quinoa. Um, we do grow potatoes, but we don't grow just your typical russet potatoes. We, we do specialty potatoes. So we do varieties that are going to be yellow, red, purple. And then we were actually the first farm in the U.S. to start growing fingerling potatoes. Mm. Uh, we actually brought the tissue culture in from Europe, cleaned it up, and had the first available certified seed in the United States on the fingerling. And when um, was just long? When was that? When, was it was that recent? But it had been a little while ago. Was that right? Or um, it, we started with fingerlings in the early 1990s. Okay. Wow. Um, so with establishing a, a new variety like that, it does take quite a while because you have to start with the, the tissue culture. From there, you're going to grow some plantlets. Then from there, you grow a crop in the greenhouse. And you're going through a whole certification process the whole way through. We'll save those potatoes from the greenhouse, plant them out in the field, and that becomes generation one seed. You have to save that crop back, grow it the next year, save it back, grow it the next year, until you get enough built up that you actually have enough crop where you can actually start selling it and marketing it. So there was a good four-year investment there before we had any actual crop available to go out and, and try to move through the grocery stores. And what, what triggered that decision to go with Fingerling? Was it a, was it a hunch? Did you see the success you had to head in Europe with selling it, or what, what triggered that decision? Well, we, we were growing seed for another grower here in the valley, and they were actually the ones that ran across the Fingerlings, and since they were getting their other seed from us anyways, they asked if we could go, you know, grow certified seed in the Fingerlings. So that was kind of the first time we'd heard about them. So we went through the process, acquired them, and started growing that seed until we started providing it to them. And as soon as we had this stuff out on the market, I mean, the, it just exploded. It, there was a lot of interest in it, and it grew very quickly for us from there. There was a lot of interest. Uh, we like the fingerlings just because they have a lot better flavor. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the shape and size and colors is kind of a very appealing. So it, it was really easy for us to get going on that one. That makes it. Conversely, I assume that's the reason you didn't plant russets behind that as well. Is that do I have that about right? That a the the amount of, of yeah. Well, I mean, we kind of reached a point in our in our farming career where we knew we kind of had two to uh, two different paths we had to consider going down, and we were small enough acreage that we were just, if we were growing a commodity just like everybody else, mm. the price was so competitive that we weren't going to be able to thrive at those acres. So if we were going to keep growing russets, we were going to have to go acquire more land and grow more of it to offset that low price. 
or we could stay the size we wanted to, but we knew we were going to have to do things much differently. So we just wanted to go into some different niche markets so we could maintain, you know, the acres that we were farming, but be able to sustain ourselves economically. Very, very cool. I really appreciate the thinking behind that because I think that's the hardest part is uh, going from thought to actual practice. You know, that like you said, that took you four years, and I'm sure you were probably thinking about it uh, a year in advance of even doing something at that point. That's um, that. Uh, it see, I know I've, I've listened to a couple of your talks, and I, I listened, heard your talk last year in Greeley, uh, which was excellent. And I appreciated you coming into town to do it. Um, you talked a lot about your the the, th- the approach to thinking. You know, then thinking about problems differently, and you just you know talked about how you thought about the marketplace a little differently. Um, could you talk about kind of how you approach farming, and just you know when you see problems, how do you address those problems on your farm? Yeah, well, and I'd say it's not just unique to just me. I feel like those are characteristics of everybody that's ever managed Rocky Farm. Sure. I mean, if you talk to the people around here, my grandpa was just known for being a little bit different, not not afraid. Mm-hmm. I would say a lot of it, too, is just we just don't really give in to peer pressure real well. Because just like with the fingerling potatoes, you know, everybody laughed at us at first, told us it would never work, and why would we want to grow these potatoes? But then we did it anyways, and it's successful. Then they come back around. And even with our journey with the soil health, it was a lot of the same approach. We started doing some very different practices out in the field. Everybody was pointing fingers, kind of laughing, you know, just all those crazy Rockies. And then after a while, they start seeing the pauses that are coming from it. And then they turn around and actually come back and start asking for help to transition their own farm. So it's just, well, I think that's a lot of it, just not having the fear to do what you know in your gut is the right thing to do. That's, uh, uh, yeah, and you can apply that to just about anything in life, I guess, huh, too, at that point. Yeah. Um, uh, so are your um, so are, are more farmers around your region growing fingerlings now? Is it? Uh, um, yeah, I mean it, it is a growing market, so mm-hmm. there are more and more people growing them all the time, for sure. Um, but at the same time, we don't want everybody to grow fingerlings because it sure. is a niche market. So if everybody were to grow them, then we would kind of lose a, a little bit of that advantage there. So it's always about finding balance. You know, you, 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 we have a few people that we sell to. B2, they grow the potatoes, and then we bring them back around to our warehouse, and that's really good. So it is it allowed us to expand and help support other members of this community, but the trouble is when you have one big guy come in, they can really destroy yeah. market in a hurry if they're not careful when, when you're dealing with these niche markets. That's, that's interesting. Yeah, probably trying to – yeah, so probably right about the time you discover the niche market, you got to be finding another niche market to, uh, to go into, I'm guessing. That point. Yeah, well, that's the thing. You start off with fingerling kids because that is the niche market. Mm-hmm. Then other people start growing fingerlings. So then you have to find a niche within that niche, right. whether it be a different variety or something you're doing value added. Or we started mixing different varieties together, which had challenges in itself at first because with USDA inspections, you weren't allowed to mix this produce. So we had to actually change the policy in order to be allowed to mix different varieties of potatoes together. So there were lots of challenges all along the way, for sure. Yeah, I can only imagine. I can only imagine. Um, I guess shift gears a little bit from the market to more the the, the actual farming aspect of things. And so the selling, sure. uh, you, I know you, and one of the reasons I really liked your talk in Greeley last year is you were really talking about addressing the problems of herbicides and fungicides and, and insecticides uh, with natural methods and looking at companion crops and green manure and, and, and other ways to create a healthy soil system versus uh, uh, toxic applicants um, to your farm. So sure. uh, could you talk about kind of just the strategy of, in, in, especially with potatoes, and this is why I was really fascinated by it, because we hear so often how it's just impossible to do this with right. potatoes. And so uh, anyway, if you don't mind getting into the weeds literally and talking about the, 
really, how did you create yeah. this ecosystem on your farm? Well, yeah, well, when I look back, there was two events that really stand out to me as far as how and why we made this transition. Uh, the first one that really stands out to me is when my uncle and my dad were running this farm. I was in high school at the time, and they were farming like everybody else, you know, the fungicides and synthetic fertilizers, insecticides. And my uncle just really got tired of being exposed to those chemicals personally. He just didn't yeah. want to be around them anymore. He didn't want them in the field. He didn't want them on the food he was selling to other people. So he decided that we were just going to stop using them. And and that's the trouble was that at the time, we, we kind of recognized what the negative approach mm -hmm. was that we were using, but we didn't know yet what positive approach to come back in with. So we stopped the chemical use. We got away from synthetic fertilizers, but we had some issues at first because, well, we hadn't earned the right yet to get away from those chemicals. Right. So the first thing we did is we got rid of the, the synthetic fertilizers, but we started using compost. And then we brought in some other products, like some uh, fish products and soybean powder. So the fertility side w was able to transition fairly well, even though it took a few years for the soil to come back to life and really start functioning for us again. But on the, on the chemical side, we had, you know, we still had a monoculture crop out there. We still had pest pressure. And so we had some issues there because we hadn't designed the system yet that could support farming without those chemicals. So that's where I had to come in much later on as far as bringing in these other diverse crops to help support that. So, so what we do on our farm now to get away from the chemical use is, is really uh, plant diversity is, is a core fundamental that we use. So for one example of that would be pest pressure. So we grow potatoes and one of the threats to us are aphids because aphids can actually spread virus throughout a potato crop and we have to meet certain tolerances on those diseases. So if we are growing certified seed, aphid are a threat, most farmers, their approach is, well, let's go kill the problem. They want to go out there and spray an insecticide and kill off the aphid. Well, we don't want to use these toxic chemicals. So we're not going to try killing off our problems. So we want to use beneficial insects. But the trouble is when you have a monoculture potato crop, that crop doesn't really support these beneficial insects mm. because it doesn't provide a food source for them. Right. So what we had to do is we had to come in and provide a food source for these beneficial insects. So if you come into my field now, what I do is I've got my potato crop out there, and right down the middle of the field, I plant a real diverse flowering mix. It's about 20 different species, so we've got stuff blooming really early, really late. Also has a different architecture to the plants, so we have a lot of habitat in there for them to lay their eggs. But the important thing is it gives them an energy source, a food source, where they can disperse through the rest of the field and consume the aphid for us. And then the next thing I did is I started actually planting canning crops in my potatoes. So in my entire potato crop, I don't have a monoculture anywhere. I've got a lot of diversity in the whole crop. So when you go walk out into my potatoes, you'll also find field peas. I've got chickpeas, chickling vetch, buckwheat, and faba beans out there. So the buckwheat and the faba beans are really good. They support the beneficial insects. The buckwheat's good because it actually mobilizes phosphorus for us, which is really good for the potato crops here in the valley. But also a lot of them are legumes, so I'm actually adding nitrogen to the soil during my cash crop. So it, so when people talk about solving problems on our farm, they always want to know, you know, well, what's the one thing you did to solve that one problem? <laughs> and that's what I, the mindsets we have really have to change. Is, you know, you go to this holistic approach, and you're doing all of these things to solve all of these problems. It's really about stepping back and looking at that big picture. Uh, I appreciate you saying that. I think that that is the the fundamental uh, ch challenge we've got to get out of is seeing 
how everything works together uh, versus how everything uh, cancels each other, replaces each other, it does that. I think that um, when you think about, uh, you know, what you've developed there and all that biodiversity, if I'm, if I'm sitting here as a, as a conventional potato farmer and not doing this, uh, one thing that enters my mind is cost of seed and looking at, like, I'm going to plant all these different things in my field and how does that affect my costs? Is that something that, uh, is that a challenge for you or did you figure out a way, how did you figure out a way around that? Well, I tell you what, let me, I'll get into my, my second event here that drove us to what we're doing. Sure. I think that'll help answer that question. Great. Um, because um, cover crops are a huge part of what we're doing on the farm now. But initially, when we got into cover cropping, it wasn't so much about building the soil and the economics behind it and all this. What really drove us to that was the drought. Mm. We just, we pump all of our water from an aquifer beneath us, and what we recharge that aquifer is with uh, the snowpack from the mountains. So we hit several years where we had below average snowpack, so we were depleting the aquifer beneath us. So we just did not have enough water to grow our two cash crops, because before that we were doing a potato grain rotation. Okay. So we didn't have enough water to grow that grain, so we decided let's go to a potato cover crop rotation. And the reason we did that is because instead of using, you know, 20 plus inches of irrigation to grow a barley crop, we could grow a cover crop on about six inches. So huge water savings that first year. But that's where we had to really kind of look at the economics of what we were doing a lot differently. Because our first mindset was, well, we're willing to sacrifice that cash crop in order to save that water. Because we were looking at sustainability in the long term. In the long term, the best thing for us to do was save that water. Mm -hmm. We were going to lose a little bit of income from losing that cash crop, and we just accepted that. But what happened is we started rotating with these cover crops the potato crop following that cover crop was performing so much better. The soil was coming back to life. Everything was starting to function that we were able to drastically cut down on our input cost on growing that potato crop. We cut back on our cost of production to the point that we actually more than offset what was lost in income from that barley crop the year before and that cash crop. So once again, it goes back to looking at not just income in that one season, but with that cover crop, we're investing in the soil for the next year. So when you look at the economics, we can't look at it from year to year, but you have to look at it on a multi-year approach. And when you look at our economics on a multi-year approach, we're actually more economically sound now by growing the one cash crop rotated with the cover crop as opposed to when we were growing those two cash crops. Man, that is phenomenal. That is phenomenal. And that's, that's just, I wish... I'd love to buy every billboard in, in America and put that message on it out there at some point. That because yeah. uh, that's that's really um, I think that our biggest challenge when we and it's really not a challenge. It's a great conversation to have when we have uh, with you know conventional farmers and we we like all growers. But when the growers come to us and they say, "There's no way I can do that," you know, stories like yours are ones are so valuable to be able to share with uh, folks out there that it is possible and it does take some elbow grease and some uh, careful thinking and. And uh, uh, some trial and error, I'm sure. But uh, and so that, that's really leading my next question is, you know, through this, what um, what's a common mistake that somebody might make, or, is, or one that you made that you went, you know, beware of this, or is there something that uh, you can help people uh, avoid something that you were learning through the process? Oh man, there's so many things, and it just it changes year to year. I mean, sure. I'm still learning. I still don't <laughs> have this all completely figured out. Um, but I would say one thing I really encourage people. Is, is the diversity. I still think that's one core fundamental that I really, really strongly believe in. And that's what was nice about going in with these cover crops. That's what really opened my eyes to diversity. Because when we started with cover crops, it was just, it was a monoculture. It was just, we started off sorghum sedan, saw great things from that monoculture. 
but then I was just real fortunate. Um, Jay here from North Dakota happened to be in my field one day. He saw my cover crop out there and mentioned the cocktail mixes they were working with, mm -hmm. so introduced me to that concept. And after that first year when we did the, that multi-species mix, then we had that potato crop the next year. I think that in that one season where we had that diversity, it's the biggest leap forward we ever took in one single year by having that diversity out there. So I saw what the diversity was doing out at the cover crops as part of our rotation. So that's when I started thinking about how can I bring this diversity into the potato crop? How do I bring these flowering mixes in? So I was just so hooked on that diversity. So no matter what, I would just never go back to growing these monocultures. I think monocultures themselves are just so damaging to these ecosystems. I mean, that's just not how they should fun function in nature. We got to have that diversity out there. And the other thing I've really been looking a lot more at too is, you know, with our story, you know, getting rid of the cash crop, going to the cover crop, and a lot of people ask, you know, trying to figure out for their own situation, should I do a cover crop or a cash crop? Mm -hmm. I think there are tons of opportunities out there for us to do cash crops and cover crops at the exact same time. So even with the quinoa, I'm playing around with some different containing crops out of the quinoa. I don't want it out there all by itself. I want other crops out there that are going to support it. So yes, I'm growing a crop to sell, so I, it's very good economically sound, but I don't want a cash crop out there that's going to damage my soil and, and make me have a worse potato crop the next year. So let's grow, grow a cash crop, benefit the soil in the process, and then you get the best of both worlds. Like I said, once again, not just limiting yourself to just you know focusing on income. Let's get some income but improve the soil at the same time. That's uh, fascinating. I'm just going to take one minute to remind our listeners they're listening to Tractor Time podcast brought to you by Acres USA. Our guest today is Brendan Rocky, a third generation Colorado farmer uh, who works on the Rocky Farms and runs the Rocky Farms. So uh, thanks to you again, Brendan, for joining us today. You, you were just talking about the need for biodiversity and, uh, uh, and, and how it really affects all aspects. And you're going into how you use quinoa. And I didn't want to interrupt that, uh, quite honestly, because I think it's an interesting crop that certainly we know is, is really boomed in popularity the last decade. Uh, we also know, uh, personally, I don't know much about how to grow it, quite honestly. Could you enlighten us a little bit about uh, the quinoa crop? And Well, uh, I'll say I'm still learning how to grow the crop, too. It's an interesting one because most of the weeds that I deal with here in the valley are pretty closely related to quinoa. Interesting. So it looked a lot like lamb's quarter, and it's, it's pretty closely related to uh, pigweed. Okay. So controlling <laughs> the weeds in quinoa is probably the number one issue that we're trying to figure out. So I, I've, I've tried a lot of different things, but that's where I think the companion crops really do help too, is just, you know, getting the ground cover, getting the shade down there and trying to manage that. So it, it, it's definitely a challenge. Um, it's pretty new to us, but we're definitely really excited about the crop, especially here in the valley, because it is a really good water user. Um, instead of 20 inches grow a barley crop, we can use about 12 inches and grow a pretty good quinoa crop. So pretty, pretty good there. It's got a pretty good market now, so we, we can actually... Uh, make a little bit of money growing it. So um, as far as once you get the crops harvested and selling, it's no problem. Huge market right now. It's a lot, lot of potential there. But just really figuring out, really fine-tuning and, and maximizing the potential of the crop out in the field is definitely going to be a challenge. And I think it's going to vary year to year. Um, why a lot of places struggle growing quinoa is they're, they're just too hot. And if we get a real hot summer at the wrong time, it can actually sterilize the, the plant and it doesn't set seed, even though you have great big plants out there. So just tons of issues we got, we have to deal with still. Interesting. Interesting. That, uh, uh, do you harvest it like you would another grain? Yeah. Yeah. We just go out with the combine. 
And that's one thing I keep in mind, so like with the companion crops, you know, I've got a little bit of buckwheat out there. I've been playing around with some different clovers. Um, lentils have done really well out there. So when I put a companion crop out there, I really keep in mind the seed size. So I want something that can be able to easily sort out later on. So like buckwheat and quinoa, I mean, completely different sizes of seeds. So I think it's something that the, the plants really thrive well together. So you end up with two crops out there, harvest them all at once, and then sort it out <clears throat> later when you when you when you're processing it. Then you have just that'll support you that much more economically. But also with the buckwheat, now I've got flowering plants out there in the quinoa that are supporting the beneficial insects, helping control some pest insects out in the crop. Once again, mobilizes more phosphorus in my soil, which is really important here in the valley because we have high phosphorus, but we also have high calcium, so they bond together. The buckwheat works great for that. And then if you have another crop you can sell at the end of the day, it's just going to make you that much stronger too. Sure. Makes all the sense in the world. Makes all the sense in the world. The uh, uh, kind of segue from that, you mentioned um, when you were talking about that, the, the lab that you work with, um, I think you mentioned earlier when you were talking about the fingerling potatoes and some of the seeds, uh, seed work that you guys, uh, potatoes that you guys grow as well. Could you, could you walk us through that side of the operation a little bit um, and kind of well, what, what you guys do in there? Yeah. All the lab is for is actually just tissue culture, so we're just propagating potato plants in there. And it's nothing really unique to us because every potato grown in this country all comes from tissue culture originally. Okay. So what we do is we get plantlets from Colorado University, certain varieties, they've been tested, so they're verified to be clean. We're cutting them, we go through and do plant cutting in the lab just to propagate enough to count that we have enough plants to uh, grow in our greenhouse. We'll transplant them into the greenhouse, grow an entire crop in there, and we'll produce mini tubers from those plantlets. So you have a tuber that came from a disease-free plant, that means you have disease-free mini tubers. We grow three greenhouse crops a year, we'll save all those mini tubers, we'll plant them in the field, and that's the beginning of certified seed production. That uh, that's that makes sense. But that's, um, I, I like that side of things. That's just Generally, where my, I love to experiment and tinker and do all that kind of stuff. So I'm always curious to see what what projects uh, farmers have going on in their barn or behind their barn. You know, looking what are they yeah. testing out in that little side plot as well. So, uh, uh, are, do you guys have any experimental side of your farm or anything that you guys are always experimenting with or doing as part of it? Oh yeah, I mean, I think every single year is an experiment. I mean, sure. we're always playing just more and more diversity. Um, even with the companion crops, that the companion crop potatoes that I'm using right now, it's not like I started off with that big. You know, I started off with just peas. I saw how they did, and then I kind of get bored with just peas. I was like, okay, what else can I bring in? So then I brought in the chickling bench. It was working well. I was like, cool, now I've got two legumes out there. What else can I do with this crop? Brought in the buckwheat for the insects and then the mobilization of the phosphorus. Then I brought in um, fava beans this last year. So just constantly expanding and trying to improve on that. <clears throat> We're always playing around with different flowering mixes, trying to really just get the most bang for our buck as far as supporting the beneficial insects out of the field. So, yeah, I mean, it's just it's a, just a constant deal. We just don't tend to stay stagnant. Um, we're always trying to move forward. I just always feel like there's room for improvement. So I, I just absolutely hate doing the exact same thing two years in a row. I always, and I never, you know, when I make these changes, it's not like I'm doing the change across the whole farm. I'm really big on just trying one little plot. Like the fava beans this year, I've got them on the entire farm, but last year I just did a couple of strips just to make sure they're going to do well out there and make sure they're not going to cause a problem at the same time. So you've always got to be playing around and just pushing yourself forward. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, the uh, uh, One other question I had related to that a little bit. Um, you you do the, the lab work. Is it in a greenhouse? Is that what you're 
where you're growing. Well, this? The, the, the lab is separate from the greenhouse. Okay. It is its own building. Okay. And so it's just, we're, we're growing uh, the plants in, in jars with grow, okay. growing media. And so it's very sterile in there just because of the growing media. It can, it can a harbor a lot of, of bad stuff as well. So it's got to be very sterile. And it's just, it's just a way of increasing those plantlets very quickly just by doing the stem cutting. Makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, uh, switching gears a little bit, uh, talking about, you know, you, you spend a lot of time, uh, it seems like, uh, when I was doing research, uh, speaking, and that's really yep. been picked up. Uh, could you talk about kind of what, what have you learned uh, as you've been speaking to different groups and kind of what reaction do you get when you bring this message to uh, groups around the country? Yeah, um, well, the speaking has been great. I've, you, you do most of the speaking in the wintertime. There's a lot of soil health conferences all across the country. Um, I average probably eight, nine, ten different talks a year. I'm really excited to get, go to the Acres Conference this year. That'll be really exciting. Um, the thing that I like about it is just I get to hear the other speakers before and after me, and I've met some tremendous people out there. And I've learned so much from other farmers in this country doing some real innovative practices, even though they're in different environments doing different crops. But it's amazing to me how consistent the core fundamentals are. Because, you know, there might be a guy from Oklahoma doing, you know, completely different crops. The environment's not anywhere the same, but he's talking about plant diversity and having livestock on the operation and soil structure. The exact same things I'm talking about, but the way we apply them on our farms are, are completely different. Um, most of the times when you go to these soil health conferences, usually if somebody's attending a soil health conference, they've kind of already opened their minds up to it a little bit. I think it's, I think it's, pretty surprising when people hear me talk because I, I would say most of the other people that are on that circuit giving those talks a lot of them are no-till you know they're on the plains not irrigated whereas here's in my instance you know it's a lot different because i am using a system that has soil disturbance right because the crop i'm growing is down in the soil and i think that's the hardest thing for people to accept mm -hmm. because no-till makes sense you know you don't have that physical disturbance so of course you're going to be able to build that soil I've had so many of these no-till guys that I've talked to, and they just say, oh, there's absolutely no way you could be building soil when you have a system where you're out there disturbing that soil to harvest that crop. But what I have to convince them of is, is I, I recognize the negative impact that soil disturbance has on the soil structure. So I have that negative in there, but that means I have to come in with other positives to offset that. So if I have that one event where I disturb soil, it does physically break down the soil structure but I have the companion crops in the potatoes. I have these flowering strips. I have the cover crops. We're grazing the cover crops now. I have all of these other positive things that more than offset that one negative practice. And so a lot of these guys, they just don't believe me. And a lot of them that come to my farm to see it firsthand. And once they get out into my field with a shovel and get their hands dirty, then they start believing what I'm doing. So that is a lot of, that is kind of, I guess, enjoyable to me at one point, just, you know, having some people doubting what you're doing and be able to convince them and show them firsthand that, what I am doing is, is possible, and hopefully it's in, inspiring to some other farmers out there that have been told the same thing, like, you know, you can't do this, you can't do this, but that's what I do. When I go and give these talks, I don't go in there with the attitude of, I'm going to tell you guys how to do this. I get up there and just say, here's what I'm doing, and hopefully you can see something about what I'm doing in my operation that you can apply to yours to head in the same positive direction. That, uh, uh makes a lot of sense. I just want to circle back. You mentioned you, you do graze your cover crops as well. Do. Uh, do you raise your own cattle or, or those uh, neighbors? Yep. I, I don't have the cattle myself, mm -hmm. so I had to go out and find a rancher that was willing to work with me and kind of, you know, I had kind of my list of goals that I wanted to accomplish by having the cows out there. 
and he had his list of goals, so we worked together. Um, I have modified my cover crop mix a little bit to really meet the needs of the cattle. I brought in some stuff like some brown midrib corn and some grazing collards and different things that are some real high feed value for him. Um, as far as the timing, we've been able to work together. I want him out there at a certain time. He has to be out of there by a certain time. Um, but it's working really well. Um, the things that really I, I've seen beneficial from having the cattle out there is, I mean, where I've got the potato crop that follows it, it, it just does tremendous each year. So you can just you just know that we're stimulating a lot of biological activity out there. We're cycling those nutrients out there. And so it's been really good. But the other thing that's really nice is we graze them in paddocks. So we leave them in a paddock until the weeds are completely managed as well. And it's had a very positive impact on weed pressure by having the cattle out there. But so much of that has to do with how we're managing the cattle. And I think that's one thing I really like to emphasize to people. Mm-hmm. Just having cattle out there is not the solution. Because if you go out there and mismanage that herd, you can set yourself back and actually do some damage. But when they're managed correctly, then they could be a huge asset for you. Are we talking about you know make you know that was one of my questions for you really is how do you as a as a as a field manager and you're looking out there when do you pull the cattle out you know what are you looking for as that indication that that field's been grazed at the appropriate level that's a question we get a lot here is uh, you know how do you keep a cow from eating the entire field and doing that and it does take close management and careful management. Uh, to make sure they're yeah. not overgrazing as well. So what, what do you look for, you know, when you... Well, look- and I would say I'm a little different probably from most of the people you speak to about grazing mm-hmm. because if you're out on a pasture, you're going to want to move through a lot quickly, more quickly because you need that pasture to recover because you can be coming back to it. Right. But for me, I'm only going across it one time. Mm-hmm. So I graze it a lot further than most guys probably would because when I first get the cattle out there, <laughs> they go out and pick the stuff they really like and then what's left out there is a little bit of pigweed some kosher so we leave them out there until they graze that weed crop all the way down and after you move them a few times they start to learn that they don't get a move until that weed pressure is gone so then they start just mowing everything down immediately because they can't wait to get that to that fresh paddock so for me and then after the cattle are gone i go in and i terminate what's left of the crop that's when i apply my compost because i'm preparing that soil for potatoes the next year so I'm not in that no-till situation. It's not a perennial cover. So that's the thing is I, I like really want to emphasize to people is just there is no one set of parameters that's going to fit everybody's operation. The first thing you need to go in is identify what goals are you trying to satisfy, and that's what we do. So that's where how I manage it is going to be a lot different than somebody else that has a, a different set of goals. Makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. I think the uh, going, and that's why I, I think the process that you went through is almost as important as the actual practice. You know, how did you find those right uh, uh, parameters that do fit your operation at that point? And you went through that um, uh, some, but really just making sure you take the time to really develop it. It sounds like is one of the keys is that you don't rush the process at some point. Uh, yeah, and, and there is some trial and error there. Sometimes you do something and just didn't quite work out. But you know, just when you do these things, we never we haven't done anything yet that was just a a complete disaster where it had long-term <laughs> effects. You know, it may not have been as functional as we wanted it to, so we always have that room for improvement, but we've never done something out there that was just devastating to our entire farm. Sure, that makes you, sense. you know, you proceed, you want to keep moving forward, but, you know, be smart about it and really think things through. And, and when I when I bring in these new practices, I mean, I just spend a lot of time thinking about it. I think about it from all the way from A to Z, the whole process through, and I talk to a lot of people. And that's what's nice. As I travel and speak, I meet a lot of these other people. I've got a huge network from coast to coast, even in other countries now, where I can send out an email, and I get a lot of answers back in a hurry. 
and I can learn from other people's experiences. But I haven't had to learn everything on my own. You know, when somebody else has a failure, it's important to share that information so that other people don't have to go through that same learning curve. If you have a failure, let other people know so they can get a head start on when they're making their transition. And that's where I think things get kind of funny in agriculture is just we became so competitive. You know, we kept our secrets and we weren't helping out our neighbors. And I think that's one attitude that we have a lot different. The things we're doing, I want to share that information with other people because I want agriculture across the entire country to improve because I think that the people in this country deserve to eat better food. So why not work together and provide that better product? And there's enough room, there's enough mouths to feed. We can all make money doing this with these improved practices. Um, I hope everybody's writing that down who's listening right now because that was, that was uh, uh, an amazing way and a, and a good way to start segueing toward the end of the program, I think, because uh, that's a really nice synopsis of what you're out there doing, what we're trying to certainly do at Acres USA, and really what we depend on as farmers like you doing it that we can cast a light on and show and say, hey, there are people figuring this out, there are people working. Uh, when you're at our conference in December, uh, will you be speaking a lot about this um, idea? or, or what Yeah, is it? I, I think they're giving me a three-hour block, so I'm, I'm going to have plenty of time to really get into it. So, I mean, some of it will be philosophical, kind of these are the reasons I do these things, but then I'm going to have time to go in and really show firsthand, here's how I'm actually applying these principles on my operation. And I've, and I've seen enough other operations where I, I think I can even reflect on what other people are doing to really just kind of inspire and provide some good information for other people that, that start heading down this path. Uh, fantastic. Again, Brendan's going to be in Louisville, Kentucky with us December 4th through 7th and speaking there. Uh, a good block will have about 35 other speakers uh, with him as well. So uh, we're, I'm excited to, to, to hear your speech as well, uh, Brendan, and, and uh, see your slide. I remember you had a slide here in Greeley. I'm wondering if you're going to bring it, that flow chart about how all your different inputs and, and things affect. I, I remember I walked into your speech as you were going through that, and I thought it was it fascinating. And just to give everybody a picture, it kind of went from a blank white screen when he started to uh, kind of Times Square by the end of it, you know, as just how busy his fields are with life. And so it was really just a cool visual demonstration of how he's developing that life in his, in his field. So, uh, yeah, I'll definitely have that as part of the presentation because the reason that's part of my presentation is I actually had to do that for myself, put all the pieces together. So it's just how my mind thinks. And it's become a really good visual, and a lot of other people have really appreciated it just to put things into context. So, yeah, it, it'll, it'll definitely be up on the screen. Great, great. Well, uh, uh, Brendan Rocky, um, thank you for doing what you do. Thank you for growing food for us. Thank you for uh, uh, doing it the healthiest way you know how, and I really appreciate it. Uh, again, uh, we're really happy and thankful to have Brendan Rocky on Tractor Time today. Uh, Brendan, is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, no, I mean, I think that was a pretty good synopsis there, and I'm just I'm, I'm glad there's people out there that do appreciate how we farm. Uh, we've got a really strong following. Um, People are always welcome at our farm. We give a lot of tours. And just like that, we, we put a lot of time into educating people and helping people out. So it's, it's just, I'm, I'm really honored to be invited to the Acres Conference. I'm really looking forward to it. And you have a website, rockyfarms.com. Is that correct? Yeah, and then I do have one for myself as well, brandonrocky.com. Um, just got to spell the rocky right. The mountain's kind of mess things out there. <laughs> so B-R-E-N-D-O-N-R-O-C-K-E-Y. Great. We will have these on the blog at Eco Farming Daily, too, along with the podcast. If people want to click through and learn more about Rocky Farms, uh, they will have the links all there. Uh, we'll get this posted uh, out there, and, and hopefully you get some feedback uh, from our listeners, too. So, Brennan, uh, thank you again for the time today. I uh, uh, hope your summer uh, goes well and you get a little bit of rain down there. Yeah, yeah, we're definitely in need of that. So. 
All right, uh, hold on the line real quick. I'm going to wrap up here, and then I'll be right back with you, okay? Okay. That was Brendan Rocky with Rocky Farms near Alamosa, Colorado. Uh, thanks again for having uh, the time to spend with us today. Uh, if you want to hear more, come to our conference in Louisville, Kentucky, December 4th through 7th. Uh, you can learn more about it at www.acresusa.com. You can learn more at ecofarmingdaily.com, our free blog. Uh, come join us. There'll be about 35 other speakers uh, like Brendan talking about everything from soil nutrition to human health to uh, grasses and crops and livestock. We got it all covered. Um, come join us. Again, learn more www.acresusa.com. Thanks again for listening. This has been another episode of Tractor Time. Have a great week.